It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across uh, the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Uh, just also so you know, uh, you can also go to our SoundCloud and listen to any of us our previously recorded interviews that are posted there, as well as listen online at our website. It's a pleasure to uh, welcome our guest to the show, Frank Sheck. He's a film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Frank, uh, welcome back. Thank you. So, uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> Is it going to be gone? No, it will never be gone. Mm. Gone with the Wind is actually the most successful movie in film history. If you were just for inflation, mm. um, it's beloved. Mm. It's controversial. Yeah. It will probably, um, well, it will almost definitely from now on require certain context when it's shown, but it will never disappear. What what makes it one of the greatest films? Well, it was Hollywood at its best. It was a tremendous... First of all, it was based on a huge best-selling book. Um, it, it, the production standards right. were absolutely impeccable, first rate. Yeah. It's a wonderful romantic melodrama. Mm-hmm. Uh, star power that yep. was incredible at the time. You know, there was a... a a massive call for Clark Gable to play Rhett Butler and an uh, international um, search for an actress to play Scarlett O'Hara. Um, it was just a huge movie of its time, and it's been re-released periodically ever since. When it was shown on te- uh, broadcast television for the first time in 1976, mm. it was and remains the highest rated uh, film ever shown on television. Wow. So audiences are not going to abandon it completely. Yeah, but it does require some historical context, <laughs> right? And I guess that's that's something that's new that's going to be added at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there have always been, uh, you know, contextual things along the way, hmm. but in the in the wake of recent events and um, our increased awareness of racial intolerance, yes. I think the film will have to come with certain explanations, much in, in the way that, um, you know, in t- uh, the D.W. Griffith film, um, whose title is escaping me at the moment, requires that kind of context now. Mm. It, one of the things you pointed out were the, was the production quality and the star power. Um, certainly, you, you can't, as you say, the, the production quality is... is 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 amazing in the film. It, it is a, a beautifully shot and and produced film for sure. Uh, just from that perspective, uh, it it ranks it high up there among some of the great films right there. Would you say? Absolutely. It also won ten Academy Awards, yep. which was the most that a film had ever won up until that point, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress. And now, uh, is there not was it, a, a black person uh, won an award for this film as well? Was it not? Hattie McDaniel, 
um, was the first black person to win an Academy Award. She won Best Supporting Actress. Mm. Um, and another black woman did not win an Oscar for another 50 years when Whoopi Goldberg won for Ghost. Wow. It took half a century. And of course, that's part of the concern as well, right? About the film is that you know the calls for for uh, uh, eliminating the film uh, really kind of brought that into to context to say, well, the, the, you know, someone of color did win an award from this film as well uh, for their for their role in in the in in, in the film. Yeah, although ironically, um, she was not allowed to attend the premiere in that's, Atlanta of the film. That's right. Which attracted some 300,000 people. Yes. And um, she had to sit in a segregated area yes. of the audience during the Academy Awards. Mm, yeah. What what is your sense of of that in terms of looking back at the film? Because you know, there's always a, a, a debate around things where it comes into light, where there is uh, something about either a character or a film or a statue or these things. They should be they should be removed, or they shouldn't be removed, or buildings should be destroyed that that have housed, uh, for instance, in Canada, residential schools. Uh, but if we eliminate them, then we're eliminating. Uh, you know that that history and not making people uh, remember that that past. Um, what is your sense about you know th- about that? What you just mentioned in in connection with Gone with the Wind. How how do you think that should be rolled into this or or uh, are packaged with it? Well, you know the film perpetuates racial stereotypes and a very inaccurate portrait of slavery Mm. so you know i I think it's a matter of education first of Mm. all it's unfortunate that showings of the film will have to come with an explanation uh, because people just haven't really been educated enough about our nation's racial Mm. history and Mm. slavery and the civil war um but and and that Griffith film I mentioned earlier, Birth of a Nation, it, mm. it's it's considered a landmark film, and even someone like Spike Lee teaches it when he teaches university courses in film. Mm. But it requires a lot of context. So right. I imagine when HBO Max resumes showing Gone with the Wind, and they've said they will, it will come with an introduction that just explains that what you're about to see is a reflection of uh, the period in which it was made, which reflected uh, less than enlightened racial attitudes. Right. Do we know much about the the people involved with the film itself in terms of what their views were at the time? You know, say Clark Gable or, or some of the other people that, that participated in making of the film, uh, what their views were, uh, you know, in terms of... Uh, the portrayal of of uh, black and colored people uh, and people of race uh, at that time. You know, at the time, I presume everyone was rather okay with it. Uh, certainly, the white people. I mean, McDaniel took a lot of criticism from her black peers about mm. the film. Mm. Uh, she was accused of being an Uncle Tom. Mm. Her response was, uh, she famously said she'd rather make $700 a week playing a maid than $7 a week being one. Mm. 
the cast and crew of Gone with the Wind were very supportive of her and the other African Amer American uh, actors in the film. Gable uh, didn't want to go to the premiere in Atlanta because McDaniel was being denied the opportunity to attend, and she actually persuaded him to go. Wow. Wow. Hmm. That's that's quite interesting to hear. Uh, and I guess that does uh, speak to some degree about his, his personal views as well. Yeah. Um, you have to understand that, you know, char black characters in films in the 30s and 40s were very often portrayed in this way. I mean, another example, infamous example, is uh, Walt Disney's 1946 animated film, Song of the South, in mm -hmm. which... McDaniel, ironically, also plays a maid, uh, which is now considered so, you know, regressive in its racial depictions that Disney refuses to show it. Uh, it is unavailable in any form. Mm. That's not a fate that will befall Gone with the Wind, but, mm. you know, Disney is very conscious of its image. Right. Song of the South is not nearly the profit maker that a film like Gone with the Wind right. continues to be, even to this day. Mm. So, um, there's no way you can see it. Even the attraction Splash Mountain at Disneyland, which is based on Song of the South, mm. is getting some heat now, and they're trying to figure out a way to revamp the attraction to remove it of that association. Hmm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to have Frank Sheck, film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter, with us here on the show today. We're talking about Gone with the Wind and uh, repercussions from recent events that took place uh, in the United States uh, to the film, which uh, depicts very stereotypical images in the film, but a monster of a film uh, for its time. Now, of course, uh, this all came to light uh, most recently because of the the very unfortunate and and uh, uh, and, and tragic death of George Floyd uh, and the protests that that ensued uh, and the attention that's gotten. What and how do you think the 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 academies and the, and the motion picture will will respond in terms you know in terms of the the Academy Awards or do you? Well and by the way, first of all, there there was a very influential op-ed in the L.A. Times by a filmmaker named John Ridley. He wrote the screenplay for 12 Years a Slave, mm. oh, in yeah. which he called for uh, Gone with the Wind to be removed from HBO Max. Uh, they didn't go along with that entirely. Obviously, they removed it temporarily, and it will be back. But that, that column really did have an impact. Uh, the Academy... You know, the Academy has been taking heat for a number of years, long before uh, the current racial unrest and, and the tragic case of George Floyd. And they've been working very hard to increase the representation of uh, minorities and people of color and women in their ranks. But obviously, in the wake of this, they're really stepping up their efforts. They've come up with something called... Aperture 2025, which is a very ambitious program to um, expand the membership of the organization, 
they are devising, and, and this is going to be something that will be very interesting to see how they finally come up with it, inclusion standards for films to be eligible for the Oscars. Uh, they've, they're creating a task force to try to develop these standards. So we don't exactly know what they're going to be, except obviously there will have to be more representation of people of color. Mm. They're expanding uh, the best picture nominees to 10. Uh, it has in recent years fluctuated uh, anywhere between five and 10, but now they're going to make it a minimum of 10 in the hopes that smaller pictures will make the cut. Mm. And there's, you know, there's already improvement on that front. I mean, last year, Parasite won mm. mm-hmm. a Korean language film. Right. I mean, it took everyone by surprise, but it just demonstrated that progress is definitely being made. They're also uh, having all of the Academy um, executives uh, undergo something called unconscious bias training, hmm. which I think, uh, you know, speaks for itself. Mm. Interesting. We could probably all use it. That's for sure. <laughs> I guess the thing is that are we seeing? Uh, it seems you know apparent to say this in in some ways. Uh, you you know you mentioned that things are changing, which is good, and things have started to change. As you mentioned, Parasite won last year, Korean film uh, in, in the language, uh, and so are we seeing a reaction rather than proaction. I think it's a combination of both. I mean, as I said, the Academy has been making steps for quite a few years now. Mm. Um, You know, because obviously there has been underrepresentation. The vast majority of Academy members are white men, Mm. (laughs) older. So they really needed to take steps and they're, they're doing it. And that's laudable. It's certainly to be commended. Right. You know, there is always the danger of overreaction, Mm. of tokenism. You know, you don't want films to be honored simply because they represent a minority viewpoint or or come from minority filmmakers. You want quality to be the most essential element in the end. But you have to walk that fine line and try to find a balance. Uh, yeah, because if you were to to just uh, nominate or award for the sake of, as you just said, uh, maybe tokenism or just because it represents uh, and doesn't stand up on on the on the other qualities, then that could be even more of a slap in the face. Yeah, and you know, I mean, nominations. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about not enough, for instance, women directors not mm. being nominated, and mm. in some cases. There were egregious oversights, um, but it also reflects the fact that there are not enough women directors. Mm. If, there, if there were more of them, <laughs> there would be more nominated. So right. really progress also has to be has to come not just from the academy, but from the studios. Mm-hmm. The academy is trying to force them into it by coming up with these uh, inclusion standards it remains to be seen how effective that will be. But I, I think progress will be made. Hmm. And you had mentioned a couple of things just a few moments ago about how, how the awards are looking and making changes, bringing in some training and those kind of things. We were, we were talking about, is this reactive or proactive? And you would also mention that changes have been, been coming to, to some degree uh, o- over a period of time. Um, 
but I guess going back to the idea of of reactive rather than proactive, um, do you get a sense, you, you kind of pointed out, it's kind of been sort of like an old, you know, the, the boys club kind of thing, the old boys club to some degree. But I, I guess when we look at the arts, and I guess it's like any other business, it is a business, um, there is favoritism, there is uh, people lobby well, better than others, et cetera, et cetera. Money plays, I guess, a role in all of this as well. A very big role. And I guess that's part of the thing that people, when we look at the arts, we always think, we think the arts are above all that. We think that they're voted on the, the, their, their, their own merit, that they, you know, we look at them and we go, wow, that's great. This should be in there. And then it doesn't get into the nomination process or it doesn't win. And we, we scratch our heads and look at it and go, what, what, what happened? How did that ha not happen? Well, polit politics and all kinds of factors always mm. play a role. Mm. You know, it's not just about quality, sadly. Right. But that's reality. Yeah. Um, so y my sense is that you, you get a, you think there's going to be some changes. We're going to see some changes made. Do you think they'll, they'll openly address this somehow as well, uh, you know, at the time of the awards? Uh, you mean by someone making speeches? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think they will. I think they're going to very much uh, publicize the progress that they're making. Mm. I mean, that's just natural. Right. Right. Okay. Um, Frank, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Is, is there anything we've missed about this that we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention? No, I think you've covered it very well. Well, it's been great having you on the show again. We really appreciate you taking the time to do so, and we thank you and look forward to speaking with you again. Uh, perhaps once we know more about what's going on and we hear more about this, we could, we could have you back on the show to uh, you know expand on this once again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thank you for taking the time. That's Frank Sheck. He's the uh, film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter, and it's been a pleasure to have him back on the show. That's this part of the program. Please don't go away, because we will be right back after this, right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. An update on Gone with the Wind since we interviewed Frank Sheck from The Hollywood Reporter. Before the film plays on HBO Max, it is now preceded by a video from University of Chicago Cinema and Media Studies professor Jacqueline Stewart. And she tells viewers, you are about to see one of the most enduringly popular films of all time, but she warns, the film has been repeatedly protested, dating back to the announcement of its production due to its romantic depiction of the antebellum South and stereotypical Black characters. And the Disney ride, Splash Mountain, it's being rethemed to star the characters from the 2009 animated film, The Princess and the Frog, which features Disney's first Black princess. And well, from lost income and gigs to canceled performances and exhibitions, COVID-19 has had an unprecedented effect on artists and arts organizations across Canada. To respond to this crisis, Artscape has launched the Together for Artists initiative. And with me now is Tim Jones. Tim is the CEO of Artscape. Welcome, Tim. 
Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Oh, so glad you could join us today. Now, for those of us who don't know, tell us about Artscape. Artscape's a uh, 33-year-old not-for-profit organization, and our mission is to make space for creativity and transform communities. Uh, many people sort of in Toronto would know Artscape through our 15 different uh, creative hubs, and they provide a mix of um, uh, rehearsal performance, exhibition, and artist workspace, as well as kind of um, uh, artist, affordable housing for artist-led families and um, uh, a range of other kind of programs and services that are all kind of designed to help artists to thrive. And who might become a part of Artscape? Well, we, we, we serve um, about um, uh, 10,000 uh, creatives sort of on any given year. Sort of they might be tenants. Uh, they might be members of our Launchpad facility. Uh, they might be owners sort of because we have a number of affordable ownership programs or, or participants in some of our uh, learning programs uh, and um, other kind of entrepreneurship development uh, initiatives. So there are lots of different ways that we uh, support creative people and and um, and thousands of people who either come through our doors or are supported through our programs and services on an annual basis. And how does an artist become a part of Artscape? Well, generally they kind of um, they apply for a, a space. They they might kind of enroll in a program sort of or take advantage of, of one of our uh, there are 42 different performance uh, uh, exhibition and event spaces uh, within our, our portfolio uh, properties so uh, there are lots of different ways that that people kind of plug in and generally it's by uh, by application sort of or by signing up i see can you give us an example of a couple of our escape projects so um, people sort of um, may know kind of Artscape Witchwood Barns, St. Clair and Christie, which is kind of uh, one of our community cultural hubs, or Daniel Spectrum in Regent Park. Artscape Young Place, sort of, Both are yeah, great. Artscape Young Place, sort of in the West Queen West area. Uh, we've also been part of the, we're an anchor tenant and uh, development partner in the distillery district. And we've had played a big role in the, uh, in the emergence of uh, the West Queen West area as um, a center for art and design in the city. Those are big. They're huge. Now, do you, are you supported by the city artscape? We're, most of the income that we gener generate are, is self-generated. So we're a social enterprise, which means that we're in business to make the world a better place. And um, we kind of, it's part of our sustainability model. So that where pe people pay rent uh, for properties, for example, it's, um, it's typically uh, less than 60% of the mar market uh, rates for commercial spaces, or in the case of affordable housing, it's kind of either rent geared to income or uh, below market. And, and, and that helps sustain us. Um, for our programs and services, sort of uh, particularly some of our educational programs, uh, they're largely supported through contributed income. Wow, I've been to both Witchwood Barnes, Witchwood Barnes, and also to the Daniel Spectrum Theater in Regent Park. Both are great. They're fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, we're very proud of them. They're, you know, it, it really kind of, uh, those projects are emblematic of the work that we do in urban and community development, which really kind of involves building the vision for these things from the ground up, sort of in the community. Uh, led by community stakeholders and and really helping using kind of local leaders and and and, and community members to help imagine 
what culture can mean sort of in a urban revitalization context. And um, uh, both of them have kind of, they're quite unique in their kind of expressions of what those communities uh, imagined the, the future of culture might entail. Yeah, it really adds to the city. Great spaces. Now, I was reading over 6,400 people have already attended workshops, part of Artscape's remuneration efforts, over 40 creative entrepreneurs lead the workshop. So this is big. Well, you know, the COVID-19 was really sort of uh, challenging for the creative uh, community. You know, um, creatives kind of rely on kind of obviously the gig economy sort of, uh, and um, many of them are also supplementing their work through the service economy sort of. And and with the collapse of both of those things, uh, people uh, immediately felt sort of the, the impact. And we uh, started uh, surveying in the weeks after the, the lockdown, uh, our tenants, members, and owners, and learned that uh, 80% of people uh, reported having lost most of their income, and 40% of the people we're supporting were within weeks of needing support from food banks. And that was really kind of a, a startling kind of um, uh, uh, thing to kind of learn about through our survey, and and we really had a sort of as an organization, kind of, while we have our own sustainability issues, as you can imagine, um, uh, we sort of uh, really uh, felt that this was a time that we really need to step up and show leadership and do everything we can to help artists to survive this, uh, this crisis. And so part of that is kind of uh, around kind of uh, helping people generate more income. And so the programs that you're referencing delivered through our uh, Launchpad uh, sort of Art and Design Entrepreneurship Center sort of have gone online, sort of, um, you noted with 6,400 people kind of in the first several months kind of engaged in those programs. And and part of it, of that work was about helping people figure out how to pivot into online sales and figure out new ways to make money, kind of even in in a place where people couldn't gather or kind of um, buy goods and services in the the normal ways that they they do. We also kind of had a big focus on health and wellness, sort of, and... um, uh, some mental health support, so different programs, and they're all available thanks to our donors and supporters, available free, uh, and um, they, they're they actually uh, being taken up uh, not just here in Toronto, but nationally and to some extent internationally as well. Now, is the Launchpad Learning Online, is that part of the Together for Artists initiative? It's one of the components of it. Sort of, um, we, we kind of um, looked at the kind of range of different things that um, – we wanted to, or thought we could do, we were best poised to deliver sort of, um, and given that sort of, uh, we had a lot of staff who were um, um, not needed in some of the areas because of the lockdown, whether it's our facilities were shut down or kind of, uh, we couldn't host events in any of our event venues. And we kind of redeployed a good number of those folks to help build these new programs and services rather than laying people off. And that's how we've been able to deliver uh, both the Launchpad Learning Program, as well as kind of um, there's been a big effort around advocacy around some of the government programs to ensure that our tenants and owners uh, are eligible for some of the federal relief programs that are coming down the pipe. Uh, We've also kind of um, engaged in sort of um, finding new ways to, to help artists generate sort of income and, um, uh, the Essential Canvases program sort of by our uh, division called Artscape Atelier is, is helping to do that. Uh, 
Um, so there's lots, a lot of different initiatives sort of that kind of are rolled up into this Together for Artists uh, campaign. And um, we're really thrilled to kind of um, tell your, your listeners that there's been a lot of uh, uh, interest and support from our uh, donors and from governments in, in helping the creative community get through uh, this uh, really challenging time. Yeah, who are some of your partners? Who's, who's helping support right now? Well, sort of, um, uh, for example, the, I'll talk a, just a, for a few minutes about our Artscape Atelier program. And one of the things that kind of uh, we recognize is that, you know, in a crisis like this, kind of, um, where, you know, a year ago we were celebrating the Raptors victory with 2 million people flooding into our streets. Uh, today, that looks like a public health nightmare. <laughs> and our sense of public space is completely uh, different. Um, you know, this is a time when kind of people um, uh, really need kind of uh, artists more than ever, actually, when you think about it, kind of the, uh, when it comes to expressing kind of solidarity and building a sense of hope and inspiration for a new and better future. It's artists who are often, often leading the way in those kind of areas. And so through our Atelier program, um, we've partnered with urban developers, sort of, so, uh, as well as business improvement areas. Uh, through a program to commission artists to kind of deliver, turn the, think of the city as a canvas, sort of think about billboards and construction hoarding and kind of um, uh, decals that might be on the sidewalk to sort of um, um, uh, to promote social distancing and kind of uh, sculptural installation, installations and different ways of actually bringing the city back to life, helping with our recovery, but doing that in a way that gets money into the pockets of artists and um, uh, to date, there's been hundreds of thousands of commissions that, uh, that developers and BIAs have stepped up to sort of answer the call and and to promote this idea of um, uh, using our city as a canvas. Uh, and um, and we expect sort of in the uh, weeks and months ahead that we'll have as many as 500 to 1,000 artists being employed in this in, in these various kind of projects uh, across the city. Uh, so that's one of the ways that we've been able to leverage some of our strong relationships with the development community and the BIAs to, to um, you know, fast track uh, money getting into the pockets of artists so that they can support themselves and their families. Creative ideas from a creative community, for sure. I've seen some of the construction sites with the art along the, along the, the wood that's up by the side. It looks great. It's like something interesting to look at and yeah. yeah. And I live near in Corktown and, and there's a whole park full of art. Right. Uh, yeah. Like it's, it's so great to see that. And it's great that during this pandemic, it's giving artists work, as you said, it's fantastic. The other sort of, there's one other major initiative that if we have a few minutes, I'd like to just touch on and that's yeah. a new initiative that we're, uh, leading in partnership with literally hundreds of others uh, across the country called Arts Unite or Unité des Arts. And this really kind of uh, also came out of some of the kind of uh, research we, work we did within our community uh, as we kind of understood the extent to which artists were struggling and just how challenging it was for them to actually access kind of resources that were uh, coming online. Um, we, as well as the Toronto Arts Council, Ontario Arts Council, CBC, and others, started kind of sending out lists of links to different kind of programs and services. And 
And we heard kind of back quite quickly from our community that people were overwhelmed to get an email with 80 different links on it, uh, grant programs and different services and support. And people didn't know how to make sense of a lot of this stuff. So we've created a kind of a new online wayfinding platform that's meant to kind of centralize sort of uh, access to all of this information, uh, but not simply to be an information hub to really help artists kind of uh, navigate or wayfind through uh, not just kind of funding kind of and, and, and grants, but also kind of things like how do you kind of uh, plug into uh, food banks and sort of mental health support and kind of where do you connect for jobs and gigs and um, what are some of the kind of learning opportunities that you can take up to um, help with e-commerce and that kind of thing. So we've really tried with Arts Unite, it's become a national program uh, supported by RBC and some other donors. Um, as a way to kind of actually help artists, uh, creative community, better be able to kind of understand what's out there and how to plug into it. Um, so we're really proud of that kind of new program, which actually just launched uh, officially this week, just uh, a few days ago. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's anything beyond Toronto. And yeah, so, so, yeah. so Arts, Arts Unite Unité des Arts really is a, a national program. Um, it's really kind of a it's a sector-led initiative. So while we incubated it, it's really going to be kind of uh, uh, managed by and for uh, the creative community across the country. And it's sort of um, the 1.0 version was released this week, but we, in the weeks and months ahead, we see hundreds of other partners, funders, uh, governments, kind of other arts service organizations, trade associations, all kind of chipping in to kind of create a central kind of um, uh, database of kind of uh, resources, programs, services, and support uh, so that even sort of should there be a second wave and even beyond that we've got a, a new way to help artists kind of um, uh, to support artists to, to help them to thrive. It's great thinking ahead. Hopefully we won't have a second wave, but yeah. Now, if, if there is an artist out there listening and they want to get plugged into all of this, what do you suggest? Where can they find Well. You? Certainly, um, it's, it would make a whole lot of sense for them to visit uh, artsunite.ca, sort of, um, which is our new wayfinding service to figure out uh, just what's out there and how to plug into different kind of uh, resources. You know, some, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do um, through that platform is really create equitable access. Uh, and sometimes people kind of, um, you haven't applied for a grant before and you don't know the ropes or you don't have the relationships or you think it's not for you. Uh, we're really looking to kind of help people through the journey that they need to go on. Maybe they're going to a food bank for the first time and they're uh, apprehensive about that. Uh, there'll be resources on that platform that will help people kind of get through some of those things. And so that's, that might be a first uh, place to start. You might also want to sort of, um, Artists might also want to check out uh, the, our free learning initiatives uh, through artscapedanielslaunchpad.ca. Um, if you visit our website, you'll you'll hear about some of the uh, some of the um, event facilities. Um, there are lots of different ways to plug in, and our website um, artscape.ca is kind of a great place to get a lot of that sort of information. Well, Tim, thank you so much. You're doing amazing work. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate your interest in it and helping us get the word out. Um, uh, I think we all have uh, an interest 
in making sure that our creative people uh, can thrive, not just during the pandemic, but into the future. They're what helps to make our city so amazingly rich and diverse and successful. And um, now's the time that they need our support so that they can continue to sustain and enrich all of us. So um, uh, thank you uh, uh, again for your interest in, in helping us get the word out about this. Oh, my pleasure. I, I go to tons of plays, art galleries. I love supporting artists and it would be a pretty boring world without art. Yes, it would. Wonderful. My guest, Tim Jones, CEO of Artscape, which has launched the Together for Artists initiative. You've been listening to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in today for David Moses. And you're listening to 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome our next guest to the show, someone I've known for quite a while and someone who has just had a, a new appointment uh, to a very, very, uh, very nice position, I might add. Naomi Johnson joins us online uh, as she is the new executive director uh, to, of Imaginative. So, Naomi, congratulations. Thank you, Nama. It's yeah. um, it's been wonderful joining this team, and ah, uh, uh, it's been it's been fabulous. <laughs> That's great. Now, a little bit about a little bit more about Naomi. So, first of all, she is from the Six Nations of Grand River Territory. She's Mohawk Bear Clan. Uh, she has a BFA honors in visual arts from York University. Woohoo, my alma mater. I also have a BFA, but it's from theater, so uh, from York. So congratulations. And uh, and she also has a, a, a diploma in cultural resource management from the University of Victoria. And uh, prior to Naomi's uh, being appointed to executive director, which started uh, on June 1st. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, part of the... Um I guess the deal with this gig was <laughs> I had a great opportunity for a year prior to be trained in the job with um, Jason Ryle, mm -hmm. the outgoing executive director. And I say it often, um, I never would have said yes if that had not been the case mm. <laughs> because it was quite a daunting position to undertake. And it's been an absolute pleasure and joy working with Jason over the year and uh um, he's not going anywhere. We're still, uh, we still have him at hand oh, for nice. when we need him. And, um, uh, I just, yeah, I'd have to absolutely <laughs> state that, that that's been, um, unprecedented. And I think the right way to go about doing things. So I just now, had to say that about Jason. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he's been there for, I guess, over 10 years or about 10 years in that position. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you said it was daunting. It's a daunting task. What, what makes you say that? <laughs> we, we often joke I don't want to mess it up right <laughs> you just want to do it right and well and um, I think just uh, taking on any kind of executive director position is one that can mm. you know it's an important vital role and you have a lot of people counting on you and you just really want to do it well yeah, no, now Naomi. Of course, you're not uh, you're not coming into this uh, position green, as you as you say. You you were there um, as I think a, a associate director, um, yes. right for for the time when you were studying with Jason. And and mm -hmm. prior to that, of course, you worked uh, with the the Woodland Cultural Center. Yeah, so that was like kind of like uh, my first love in a way. <laughs> I was at Woodland for a, a 
well, I had a number of years, started as a summer student. And then what so often happens with Woodland is you just keep coming back to the place. Mm. And eventually, you know, I served as artistic director there for seven years and then uh, co-executive director for just under a year. Yeah. And of course, uh, for people that are not familiar with the, the Woodland Cultural Center, Center, it is the old uh, Mohawk Institute that was uh, from the Six Nations area, located in Brantford, but but was given back to the community, what, in the 90s? Is that Naomi, was it? Um, it, yeah, it was given back in uh, seven. Uh, sorry, sixty nine. Okay, uh, actually, and, and, it, and then in nineteen seventy two, it reopened as a cultural center, right? Um, which was uh, the old uh, residential school, and uh, given back, as we say, as a as a as a place for the community to use, uh, and uh, as a cultural center, it has both. Uh, it has it has performances, brings in performances, and also has the museum uh, where people can go and visit and, and learn about history there. Yeah, I was think, thinking about this this morning is, um, I don't think anybody ever like wakes up and, or, you know, dreams about as a young child being a arts administrator. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, how do you get to these places? But, mm. you know, for myself as an individual, I've, um, I've always loved the arts. I always thought that's kind of what I was going to end up doing as a practice was mm. being an art artist, but life just kind of takes you down these paths and um, different opportunities arise. And then you find you have an affinity for certain things. Mm. And I think where my passion does truly lie and where I find joy is in creating opportunities for Indigenous artists. Mm. So I'm like, I, I know I make right where I'm supposed to be. And I, I really, you know, with my work with Woodland, that's always what was at my mind. Like, what would I have liked to have created or facilitated mm. if I was a young and up and coming artist, whether it be, you know, whatever medium. So now like taking that and being able to facilitate those opportunities, you know, for new media artists and filmmakers at Imaginative, I'm just, I just, like I said, I, I this is where I'm supposed to be because mm. this is where I really find my joy is making sure that we have like a strong place for Mm -hmm. for our artists to showcase their works. And of course, uh, the Woodland Cultural Center was a great place for you to uh, to, to be uh, introduced to that because it is a place also that deals with live performance artists uh, in many in many genres and and also has that museum aspect to it. And and it's a, it's a, it's also like tied in. There's some great people that that have worked there over the years, and uh, and it has it has a pretty pretty good profile on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I was really fortunate to kind of come up there in my younger years working with um, Tom Hill mm. and uh, Judy Harris, who mm. were definitely my mentors. And I think I, you know, learned aside from just being able to program um, arts, artistic mm. works is just as people and learning how, you know, to manage teams and to um, work with people and mm. get the best out of people. So I'm, 
I, I owe a lot to Tom and Judy. Those right. were really great years. Right. And of course, now, you know, we're going to get back, of course, to Imaginative and stuff. But I just I just <laughs> wanted to catch us up to date on because the, the, the Woodland Cultural Center is now going through that whole uh, uh, a phase of trying to, to raise, uh, save the evidence uh, to restore the uh, the building uh, to uh, to a museum um, so that it can be it can be uh, you know um, that museum for for future generations to come and visit and um, and and of course that's a big undertaking um, that it's that it's trying to do yeah I think um, the the kind of the beauty and the unique thing about woodland itself is that it was an opportunity for a community to get a place that, you know, had quite a lot of trauma associated, mm-hmm. um, not only for the, the community that, you know, lived right directly there, but if you look at the broader scope of, you know, this country, mm-hmm. here we have a place that the community was going to be able to dictate what the message was and mm-hmm. what the histories were. And um, it, it that was unprecedented for the time. And I think right. now is, again, this opportunity has come for the place where, you know, this residential school history, which has been disseminated so widely from a Canadian perspective yet, um, with consultation, you know, from Indigenous people, but this is actually physically, you're going to a place where you're going to get a very visceral and real history. Yeah. And, um, but there's still, you know, the center there, Woodland Cultural Center. And that is, you know, showcasing um, our history before residential school. It's showcasing Mm -hmm. our contemporary practicing artists today across all um, disciplines. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, um, it's it's such a unique and wonderful place. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I hope uh, Naomi that that maybe you can. Uh, one thing I was just thinking of that 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 the Woodland Center does uh, or tries to do every winter. <laughs> maybe you can raise the profile on the snow snake competition. <laughs> <laughs> In your new role, I think that's that's a, a sport that most pe- more people should know about. Yeah, um, David, I don't work there anymore. <laughs> no, but I meant bring it into imaginative sometime. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, I'm certainly if there's a filmmaker that wants to um, do something on Snow Snake, <laughs> I'm happy to have them at the festival. <laughs> yeah. Um, so listen, you're going to work with. Uh, you're going to have a great team working with you at Imaginative, of course, as well. And uh, and 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 um, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that team and Nikki Little, for instance. Yeah. So um, Nikki started um, just like a month prior to my hiring, mm. and um, it's been wonderful. Um, like you know, as we mentioned, I kind of was an artistic director <laughs> for quite a number of years, so. Going into this position, I definitely kind of gave myself, you know, this is this is her realm. I want to support Nikki. Mm. I want her to feel free to dream and uh, make the things happen that she wants to happen for the mm. organization. And mm. um, I think we're a really excellent team. Um, she's just like a really cool person to know and work with. And um, that's kind of my role, just like, across the board with all the people at Imaginative. Is I'm there to support their work and mm. make sure that you know things happen. Mm. 
My guest is Naomi Johnson. She is the new executive director of Imaginative. She just started the job in uh, June 1st. Uh, so congratulations to Naomi once again. It's a real pleasure to have Naomi on the show. Uh, we go back a number of years. I, I, uh, as Naomi knows, I had uh, uh, a, uh, a business located in actually the uh, the woodland former culture. Mush hole. <laughs> the former mush hole. And uh, so... Uh, you know, and was there until they, they kicked us all out because of leaks and things that were happening in the building, uh, shut it down so they can re, uh, turn that into a museum, uh, uh, as, as, a, as an old a museum of what it used to look like. So um, it, as the new executive director of Imaginative, uh, Naomi, it is a great position, Imaginative, uh, unique festival in the world. So congratulations uh, to yeah, you. Yeah, it's again. the largest, you know, it's the largest film festival festival of indigenous um, new media works in the world um so we are international um mm -hmm. been going on strong now for, for our this will be going into our 21st yeah. year um submissions have just closed mm. for this year so we're already uh, watching uh, everybody all the um, the juries mm. and the programmers are getting together and they're looking at all the entries. So we're getting very excited about what we can offer. Um, right. You know, given the current state of the world, we are going to be an online festival this year. Think what it has, it has allowed us to do, and I think many other organizations, is it's given us a little bit of time, a pause, an opportunity to explore online offerings, mm. you know, things that have I've always been kind of like a component that we feel we could have strengthened, but it just never had the time because, you know, we're mm. kind of just focusing on the next, the festival. Mm. Um, so now this, we're building a system that'll be in place for, for you know, years to come. So it's, yeah. it's like a, a, one, a good way of kind of trying to, you know, make lemon out of lemonade kind of situation. Yeah, yeah sure. That is great. So um, again, uh, with that, uh, given the fact that it's going to be an online uh, uh, festival this year, uh, you know, and as you just pointed out, it's it's going to help you look at some some new ways of of doing this. But uh, what are you finding right off, right like at this point in time? What are you seeing in terms of challenges or or those kind of things for the festival as it rolls out? Well, I think the biggest challenge is that it is new territory. Mm. Um, it's kind of like it's a challenge but it's also the same thing that is exciting. It's mm -hmm. just having something new to try to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, so it's taking, you know, uh, when you've been doing a festival for 20 years, there's kind of a rhythm and a flow right. in the planning and uh, certain expectations of when you're getting certain pieces into place. And now that's it's kind of changed because you're trying to figure out how to facilitate all of these works and you want to make sure that it's done well mm. and you want to make sure that it's going to serve the art that you're presenting, the films mm -hmm. that you're presenting. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, it's like, I don't know how to make it sound exciting for everyone, but it is a lot of logistics. <laughs> Well, like yeah, for <laughs> puzzle sure. work <laughs> for sure it's it's like anything uh, uh the 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 public gets to see about 10 percent of of what actually goes into the work to make it uh, a finished product you know absolutely <laughs> <laughs> it goes for any kind of event that you're presenting right. um i always used to say that you know like what, you, what you're about to see is probably like i i even 10 percent might mm. be generous <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, one of the other things that uh, that it sounds like this might be new for this year, but I'm not sure, is the gifting from the Spirit and, and for the Spirit items. Mm-hmm. Is that, you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so the concept um, is one that is like rooted in, um, you know, many indigenous um, cultures throughout this country, and that is the the concept of reciprocity, which is something that speaks directly to imaginative's values. And imaginative, like we're very much aware of, we're you know we're a strong, healthy org- indigenous arts organization, mm-hmm. and. We know that we hold a place that is not, you know, typical for many Indigenous arts organizations across this country. So what we would like to do with this festival is work with different um, sponsors and partners to be able to facilitate a massive giveaway throughout Mm. our festival. So Mm. literally... Um, you know, we don't have the, <laughs> don't have everything quite signed off on yet, but the idea would be gift cards, um, purchasing um, artists' goods that we could then do facilitate mm. literally an online giveaway. Mm. That's great. We look forward to hearing more about that, and uh, if we can be of assistance here, uh, we'll be happy oh. to do so. I'll have my people call you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'd say For let's sure. I'd say that let's do amazing. lunch, but we can't do that right now. So you know. <laughs> Um, so listen looking forward for imaginative as you you now are heading into the role i know you're just getting yourself uh just getting yourself into the seat uh but uh but what what do you what do you think about the the future of of imaginative and and where it might be going i think the future of imaginative is bright um we have really excellent people on our staff that are committed and passionate and our interest is always in just being there to present the very best in Indigenous filmmaking from across the world Mm. and making sure that those stories, uh, those Indigenous voices are shown well and often. So one of the things I know that in a way, thanks to kind of, you know, the situation with this pandemic, we've been forced to kind of explore different modes of um, reaching people. Mm. And that's where our minds are now. Mm. Um, and then and not only with just this like online environment, but like, how do you reach people where there are places within this country that don't even have the capability of, you know, the infrastructure to mm. actually receive some of these, these films. So right. I, um, I definitely see more outreach work mm. happening and, making sure that, you know, imaginative is everywhere that we can be. Mm. Interesting. That sounds great. And of course, the Imaginative Film Festival and Media Arts Festival is going to be uh, from October 20th to 25th this year. Yes, um, that's correct. As we said, online, uh, people can find out more by going to www.imaginative.org. And uh, you also have uh, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram handles that people can go and check out as well. And Naomi, is there is there anything else that you think we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention? Every Thursday, uh, we are programming live events on our Facebook, and you can find the links for everything if you go to our website, mm-hmm. um, imaginative.org. And um, we have uh, artist talks, we have comedy panels. Um, so every Thursday, 2 p.m., uh, you can kind of get a little 
little taste of things to come for, right. from and, Imaginative and, for the festival right. in October 20th, 25th. Nice. And that, of course, uh, 2 p.m. is Eastern time, in case there's people yeah. outside of the time zones that are that want to check that out and uh, view. Uh, Facebook, I can give those handles out if you like. It's Facebook slash Imaginative, and then the Instagram is at Imaginative. So uh, you can you can tune in and find out more. Uh, Naomi, I wish you all the best with this new role. Congratulations once again. Uh, you know, it, it's great to see you uh, get this position, and um, and and all the best to you. Thank you, David. It's like um, it's really lovely. You know, I've, like you said, you've known each other for a few years, and it's mm. it's just been a real treat to be able to hear your voice and <laughs> have a conversation with you today. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Likewise, and um, and when things uh, finally settle down, if uh, if we're able to finally get together, let's let's do that. Let's get, have a coffee sometime and and, and uh, catch up, sort of so to speak. And and again, uh, I am so proud of you for uh, for getting this <laughs> this position. It's such it's so great to see you in the in this role so uh uh yeah congratulations once again yeah david that's yeah, very no. very nice thank you yeah, our pleasure so that's naomi johnson she is the new executive director of the imaginative film festival just got the job as of june 1st 2020 and uh the imaginative film festival is going to run online this year and it's going to be taking place from october 20th to 25th and you can find out more by going to Imaginative's uh, 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 website at www.imaginative.org. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.